Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 7. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you're patient with us. We thank you that you forgive us. Father, we confess that we err in many ways. We ask that you'd be merciful to us. And we pray that you would work in our hearts and then you'd make us joyful to be your children. That you'd restore to us the joy of our salvation. That where we're cold, you'll warm us. And we pray that you'd use the word today as we read it. We want to understand it because they're your thoughts. And if we know your thoughts, we'll love you. We pray that you'd help us to do that. And be with me. Protect me from error. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, quick recap. So last time, we're right in the middle of a a study through the book of Acts. Um, so we're at chapter 7. Last time, though, we started in chapter 6, and it was a lengthy passage. I don't know if y'all remember this, but um, Stephen was greatly used by the Lord, and false witnesses came, if you remember. He was full of grace and power, the Scripture said, and was doing great signs and wonders. And as far as we know, that he's the first non-apostle to do that. He seems to have a hybrid role. He was a deacon, the first deacon chosen to feed the widows. And later the church or the scriptures say that he was doing great wonders and signs. And the scripture says that he was a man, quote, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And what we've seen all through the book of Acts in our study is as the gospel is preached, opposition comes almost immediately. People follow them around, ready to oppose their message. And this happens with Stephen. They disputed with him. Jews, the scripture says, who've been slaves and from Africa and from the north, which would be more like modern day Turkey. But the scripture says they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. He was full of God's grace. And so the Bible says they lied about him. They said he badmouthed Moses and the law and never ceases to speak against the temple. If you look there, that's chapter 6. Verse 12, excuse me, verse 11, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. 
We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Verse 15, gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So while all these false accusations are coming, right, which the law forbids, by the way, talking about he hates the law and never tells anything good about it, bearing false witness, it's a commandment. Do not bear false witness. They've conspired together to bear false witness that an innocent man is not keeping the law. The height of hypocrisy. I mean, come on. And the people sitting there watching it, they're like, look at his face. He looks like an angel. And we talked about that, if you remember. When this happened to Moses, maybe. Potentially, it's the same thing happening. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. He has an encounter with God. And when he comes down from the mountain, quote, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And the people were fearful of Moses, if you remember this. And he took to wearing a veil over his face so that it wouldn't distract people. And so they wouldn't be fearful of him. Well, we don't know exactly what's going on here with Stephen's face. But something changed in his appearance. Otherwise, why mention it? His face was like the face of an angel. Well, then we read the first part of chapter 7. And Stephen, I have never realized how brilliantly he is preaching to them. I, I didn't until, like we talked about this morning, Eric, just looking at it as a bigger view and then zeroing in on it. And he's, the Holy Spirit truly is working in him powerfully. He's going to show them, their, their accusations are, one... Um, you're trying to do this stuff outside of Jerusalem and outside of the temple. That's not our custom. That's not what we've been doing. You're wrong even to be doing that. And he shows them God often worked outside of the temple. And and they're the ones who are failing to see God's pattern and will. He he brings up in the beginning of chapter 7... That Abraham himself, the father of the faith, never entered the promised land. He was a man of faith outside of Jerusalem. And he was given a promise which he believed, right? A promise of a son in a very old age. He was told his descendants would be so numerous, trying to count them would be like trying to count dust, If you can count the dust, then you'll be able to count your descendants. And the point is, it's almost uncountable how many. His descendants would enter the promised land, not him. And it's a land full of blessing and abundance, which he's promised. Well, that today we'll take up in verse 9. It's lengthy. There's not a great place to stop in this section. 
But you binge watch things, right? We're going to binge the scriptures and it'll be great for us. Chapter 7, verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and to Joseph's family. Excuse me. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man, and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Verse 30, Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire, in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. As he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. Quote, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. End quote. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. When the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for this place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. Verse 35, This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? 
This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Quote, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Repen, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, um, who spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with Joshua when they disposed the na- dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the day of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, quote, Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Verse 51. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in hearts and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. We'll stop there. So it's a lengthy sermon. Joshua's point is it is a pattern in Scripture that in in the history of Israel that Israel rejects those who are sent to help them. It happens again and again. He brings up Remember Joseph? He had a dream and God was going to use him to save many lives and they rejected him. His brothers first were going to kill him, just kill him outright. Then they decided to sell him as a slave. They wanted to get rid of him. He was rejected. But God was using him. 
Verse 17 of chapter 7, which we just read, Stephen turns to Moses as another example of someone God was using, but the people would not obey him. Moses is a man with a very special life. Has has there been anyone like Moses in the way his life is? And Stephen tells his story in three parts, three 40-year periods. The first being his birth. We could go back and look at that, but you remember, the law said that the male children were supposed to be killed. And the midwife that helped with Moses' delivery, did not fear that law. She feared God. And she kept Moses alive in defiance to Pharaoh. We've seen this multiple times recently. She had a higher command from a higher king and refused to destroy him. And in God's providence... The daughter of Pharaoh finds Moses and raises him as her own son. And the scripture says he was taught well. He had a fine education. He had a fine life with the most powerful family in Egypt, possibly the world at that time. This is a special life. That he has. Verse 23. The next phase of Moses' life. A 40 year period. He talks of Moses' initial rejection by Israel. And how he left Egypt and went to Midian. You remember this? We talked about this many years ago. It's fresh in my mind still. Was Moses righteous when he killed the Egyptian? You remember that discussion we had? Should he have done that? Was that a fit of rage that God was unhappy with? Or was that righteous indignation and judgment? And I don't remember all your answers. I know mine. I think he was righteous. But his fellow Israelites... They, they see him as somebody who's trying to be a big shot for no reason. Okay, you've been living up with Pharaoh. Good for you. What makes you our ruler? We don't have to listen to you. Get out of here. And the, it seems that Moses is shooken up by that. He leaves. He flees the area to Midian. Verse 30 through 34. Stephen discusses how God um, calls Moses officially. Moses kind of had an idea already, right? When he strikes down the Egyptian, he said, it, the Bible says, he assumed that they would see that God was using him to save them. But they didn't see that. And if God had pre- previously spoken to Moses, we don't have a record of that. But he seems to have had an inkling that that's what his role was going to be for them. Verse 34, though, when the 40 years had passed, so he's been in Midian for 40 years. This is a long time. I mean, think about it. 
Forty years he lived in the best place you could live in the ancient world. Fine education. And then he flees and he's living in the Midian for 40 years. You know, get back on the horse, Moses. It's a long time that you've been hiding out in Midian. When 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And we remember what happens there. God calls him. God uses him greatly. God performs many signs and wonders through Moses. You remember these with the plagues, many things that had happened. But the scripture says, verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as ruler and redeemer. He, he did all these things, but they didn't receive him. They listened kind of, right? Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their heart, they turned to Egypt. Now listen to me. There are two people in the Old Testament that the scripture defined as God's friend. God's friend. Listen, we use friend in a different way than they use friend. I, I read an article about this. This is very interesting. Marriage in ancient times was not seen to be as close of a relationship as a friend. Often the marriages were not in their control at all. The women were not considered equal partners in the relationship. Friendships were voluntary relationships. Moses is God's friend. Quote, He spoke to him face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Is this the highest honor possible for a human? Let's just say, for example, I said, I know somebody that you really admire. You know? I used to play at a playground and Stevie Ray Vaughan would come over there and play his guitar. Y'all, y'all, some of y'all who like guitar, you might say, wow, that is, that is pretty, that is great. You got to hang out with him. And I would say, no, nah, I'm not that old. I'm just kidding. But you see what I'm getting at? If you said God is my friend, we're close. We talk face to face. Is that an honor? Is that the highest honor possible? To be called the friend of God. Of course you want God to be your friend, but I'm saying he's your friend. You know, sometimes you call somebody your friend, but they wouldn't call you their friend. This this relationship is mutual. 
The God of Israel honored Moses. And the people rejected him. Why would they reject a man that God considers to be his friend? The only other time Abraham is said to be God's friend. And the answer is because they've rejected God. That's why they're rejecting Moses. You think they doubt that God sent him? I don't. I think they just don't like it. They've rejected the good plans for their lives. When Moses leads them, delivers them from slavery, they, not long after, would rather just go back and be slaves again. God has plans for them, for a hope and a future. Not in Egypt, in a promised land. A land flowing with all manner of blessings. The promised land, which is ultimately a shadow, isn't it? They did enter that promised land, and it was a land with abundant blessings. But I think that's a, that's a shadow the, for us, the blessed promised land of the kingdom of God. That land flows with blessing, even everlasting life. Let's talk about this for a minute. On this earth, we see people who are tired. We do. So tired, they're tired of their lives. Whether from old age or sickness or heartache or depression. They're tired of their lives. They would rather die. I, I sympathize with them. I pity them. But listen, that is not the case for the place that Jesus has prepared for his friends. Do you remember what Jesus said? I call you friends. Who? His disciples and all Christians. The place that Jesus has gone to prepare for his friends, it's a place that always flows with health and happiness. Joy and righteousness abound, flourish there. God's glory shines in all places. Sin is completely and totally vanquished, never to be seen again. Are you tired of your life? Look to the Lord, friend. Believe the gospel. Trust the promises of God. He doesn't make promises lightly. Do you think a God who warns us against making vows and not keeping them would make vows and not keep them? No, he would never do that. He's not a hypocrite. 
God is good. Look to the Lord. Trust the promises of God. Hope in the resurrection. What what do you have in your faith if you don't hope for the resurrection? You are going to die definitely today or tomorrow or sometime soon. And it'll be before you think. But if that's all you have, just despair because that's terrible. We hope in the resurrection. When we die, that is not the end of us. This is a central tenet of the Christian faith. Jesus rose from the dead and we shall be like him. Hope in God. You're tired of your life? Pray. The kingdom of God, it's more valuable than anything you have. You remember Jesus' parable? He said, there was a man who found a pearl of great price, great value, enormous value. But he really wanted it. He had to have it. He sold all, he liquidated his assets to make liquid, to get the cash for it, Isaac. And he used the cash and he bought that pearl of great price so he could have it. He wanted it. He wanted to take possession of it. What does it cost? It costs everything. Okay, that's a good deal. You hear me? The gospel of Jesus is a pearl of infinite value. What would you sell to embrace it? Would you sell it all? Would you liquidate everything to enter the kingdom of God? Listen to me. If you did, you made a good trade. You would never say later, I I have buyer's remorse. I sold too much for that. No, that's impossible. The stuff that you got rid of, you can't keep anyway. You can't can't keep it and what you gain it cannot be lost or diminished in any way the kingdom of God it can't be diminished it is increasing well let's get back to the text for a second Stephen is Not for a second, for the remainder of our time. Stephen is exposing the sin of Israel. Isn't the sin that they they don't listen to God? And I submit to you, that's our sin too. God has shown us things and worked in ways that we should be 100% faithful all the time because He's so good to us. And because we love Him. Okay, well then what's the problem, friend? Do you really believe? Oh, yes, I do, Brother Bill. Okay, well, what's the problem? Obey your Lord. Well, it's more complicated than that. Is it? Yeah, it is, because you don't want to. The the struggle between the spirit and the flesh is still 
a reality. I mean, what's the point of Stephen preaching this? He wants them to believe. He wants them to repent. God chooses leaders for the people, and you reject them and fail to follow their teaching. He wants them to wise up. God is blessing the people with wisdom and power through Jesus. He's working a new thing like he did with Abraham and Moses. Not where Jerusalem is the center. Not where the temple is the place where we expect God to dwell. He can't be confined by something that we build. And then Stephen addresses that because that was one of their objections. Jesus is de-emphasizing the temple. Who does he think he is? This is the center where God lives. And Stephen addresses that. Verse 48, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. You want to know where he lives? He, He quotes it. Heaven is my throne. And the earth is my footstool. You're going to make a house for me on the earth? If you, did, if you used the whole thing, it would merely be a footstool for me. What kind of house are you going to build for me? Not saying that it wasn't God's will at the time that they have a center of worship. It was, but he doesn't only live there. In fact, he's everywhere, isn't he? And isn't that the freedom of the gospel? This isn't for Jews only. This isn't for people in Jerusalem only. This isn't for the temple only. All people everywhere, all ethnicities, all locations, at the same time, at any time, have access to the Father Through Jesus. The temple. Where is the temple now? Does God live there? The building that there was not one stone left upon another. Providentially, God had that destroyed so that they would move on God's plan is to indwell his people not a building is this the church well yeah we call it the church but this this is the church it doesn't matter where we meet but that we meet God is working something that I mean, really? The temple of Israel was a masterpiece for the time. Remember when the disciples, they look at it, they marvel at how awesome it is. Look at that. That is something. But listen, God's church, 
where he lives. The people of God, former rebels and terrorists, former enemies, now with love in their hearts to God and their fellow man, being fitted together into the dwelling place of God. That's the true masterpiece. How can you put all those mismatched parts together and come out with anything that's good? Because the glory of God. He puts Simon the Zealot together with Matthew the tax collector and they work hand in hand. People who would have hated, well, Simon definitely would have hated Matthew. The bride of Christ is being adorned for her husband with holiness and righteousness. The people full of hope, full of faith, walking humbly with God. It's beautiful. There's nothing like it. Verse 51. Stephen, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. He's been preaching to them saying, you remember, remember how they treated the leaders that God used to deliver them? You're doing that now. And the leader that you're rejecting is better than those leaders were and more powerful. You do this every time. You persecuted all the prophets. Then later, after time goes by, you honor that prophet. They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. John the Baptist murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So what's the message for us? Don't do that. It's not that hard. The hard part is doing it or not doing it. Right? It's not that hard. Love your neighbor. It's, we know what it means. Just sometimes we don't want to. Listen to what the Scripture says about the church. Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I know I'm preaching to the choir, or at least let's say the church, because you're sitting here in church right now. But this is the reason why it's important. How can you be fitted together into a spiritual dwelling place for God as one stone? Isn't that an incomplete building? You need the whole stones. It's arrogant and foolish to think that you'll survive alone. And listen, do not put God to the test. Obey Him. Be in fellowship with fellow brothers and sisters. 
1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Does he live in the temple? He lives in us. Is that a holy place? This is a holy place where the Spirit of God lives. I pray we won't reject the path that God's laid out for us. Jesus is the path. Don't be like Israel. And I pray that we won't just give lip service to that either. We'll actually listen and obey Jesus. To God be the glory. He's doing great things. Let's have a prayer. Father, thank you for this. We confess that we are definitely liable to do the same things. Have mercy on us. Forgive us where we've presumed. Forgive us when we've put you to the test. Forgive us, Lord, for being arrogant. Forgive us, Lord. And we pray that you'd stir us up to love and to good works towards you and towards our fellow man. Father, we pray that you'd reveal to us and show us, lead us to how we might be a blessing to the people around us, to poor people, to people who need help, who need friends. Oh Lord, and help us to be friendly. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.